So, hi. Um, I'm Jeffrey Cohen of Neurology, and Rich Rothstein has told me that I'm now chair of medicine for the day. So first of all, we're, we're, we're taking you into neurology. We're going to recalculate the incentives. I'm going to raise everyone's incentives, and the residents can all go home. So that, that's it. Um, you guys are much better than neurology. People show up about 10 minutes late for the beginning. So. I really have an honor today because I get to introduce Ben Hills, who's going to introduce our, our grand round speaker, Chris Walsh, who's incredibly accomplished in the field of uh, genetics, particularly looking at diseases that I probably see once in a lifetime, but uh, extraordinarily interesting. So let me tell you about Ben. He's a MD, PhD candidate. He worked in Chris's lab and uh, had a first authored paper on something that neurologists would love. Uh, it's a grid two deletion that causes a cerebellar degeneration and an upwards gaze problem, something that you see every day, I'm sure, in clinic. But for me, this is really incredibly interesting research. He got the Schweitzer Award, and he's also an accomplished mountain biker. And probably of all of that, the mountain biker thing is the most impressive to me. So. <laughs> Uh, we're very happy that you chose Chris to bring here, a great choice, and um, why don't you introduce him? So, as Dr. Cohen said, um, I had the privilege of spending two years in Chris's lab prior to beginning medical school. And in my very first meeting with Chris, I was struck by his childlike enthusiasm for seeking answers to nature's secrets, which is a quality I recognize to be shared amongst uh, the very best scientists. What I didn't yet know was exactly how much he had already contributed to the fields of neuroscience and neurology. Chris began his scientific career as an MD-PhD student at the University of Chicago. In the lab of Dr. Ray Guillory, Chris's thesis work focused on the mammalian visual system. His findings provided fundamental insights into the lineage and development of retinal ganglion cells and how the axons of these cells grow to form the optic nerve, chiasm, and tract. Chris went on to complete a residency in neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And after residency, he remained at Harvard, working as a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Connie Sepko. Here, Chris used a retrovirus to label newborn neurons in the developing rat brain. This work yielded seminal discoveries characterizing the migration patterns of these newborn neurons as they traveled from their birthplace near the lateral ventricles uh, to the developing cerebral cortex. Since Chris started his own lab in 1993, his research has primarily focused on identifying genes involved in human brain development and studying the lineage of cells that comprise the human cerebral cortex. These studies have identified more than two dozen genes associated, uh, associated with pediatric brain disease, including gross brain malformations, intellectual disability, and autism spectrum disorders. Chris has leveraged these discoveries to help counsel the families of patients afflicted by these diseases. One current area of research in Chris's lab is understanding how somatic mutations give rise to genomic variability in the human brain. It is this topic that Chris is here to discuss today in his talk titled, One Brain, Many Genomes, Somatic Mutation and Genomic Diversity in the Human Cerebral Cortex. So please join me in welcoming the Bullard Professor of Pediatrics and Neurology at Harvard Medical School, investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and chief of the Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital, Dr. Christopher A. Walsh. Thanks very much, uh, Ben. It's great. It's great to be here, and it's a, it's a particular pleasure to be uh, invited by the students in the MD PhD programs, which is a you know something I've always been very committed to, uh, the combined degree education. I also want to thank um, all of you from the medicine department who are here to listen to a neurologist today. I really appreciate you uh, coming and taking an interest, and um, so I'll try to uh, talk about some concepts which I think are of potentially general applicability to many of the organ systems of the body, although uh, our lab has particularly applied them to study in the brain. Uh, and um, 
but you know, forgive me if it's a, if it's a mostly sort of a brain-centered uh, talk, since um, I, I, that's about all I, I have to bring. Um, so I've been interested. <laughs> our lab has been interested for over 20 years on all sorts of different developmental disorders of the brain, and. Uh, they have all sorts of technical terms, and like Jeff said, most of them are rare as hen's teeth. Uh, but um, we've learned that uh, by studying them, we've learned a lot about how the brain develops. And I just wanted to acknowledge, um, since I'm sort of here to meet the students and talk about how I got where I am, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, Peter Huttenlocker, a child neurologist at the University of Chicago, who's really solely responsible for me getting into this entire line of investigation, because after I knew him at the university as a student, uh, I went away and did my residency and then met him again at a conference. And uh, he actually referred to us the very first family with a developmental brain disorder that we ever worked on. And but for that, I would never have started doing human genetics. Uh, and uh, that, has, that then became the theme of my laboratory. So, uh, um, uh, and unfortunately, we lost Peter a couple of years ago, but just wanted to acknowledge that. So I'll be talking today about uh, somatic mutations, uh, otherwise known as mosaic mutations. and. Um, these are actually in some ways more familiar to internists than to neurologists because these are the, uh, these are the stuff of cancer. Uh, these are mutations that arise, are generally thought to arise uh, during the cell divisions that generate the body uh, because DNA polymerase does a very good job of copying our DNA, but nothing's ever perfect. And so every time a cell divides, it's estimated that about 100 uh, mutations occur uh, in the <coughs> genome. Uh, at various places, not usually in the coding parts of the genome, but uh, occasionally they do. Uh, and so somatic mutations or mosaic mutations, uh, because they occur during mitosis, they don't occur in the germ cells during meiosis, but they occur during mitosis. And so they're present in some of the cells of the body, but not others. They arise in a dividing cell, and then the mutations are inherited in all of the daughter cells formed by that original mutated cell. So here, if, it, if this mutation occurs in this cell and not in that one, it'll be spread through the daughter cells of that cell, uh, but not through all of the cells of the body. And as I say, these are the stuff, we know that these cause cancer, that if you get the wrong sorts of somatic mutations, they can unleash uncontrolled <coughs> proliferation. But it's only recently that we've had the technology to try to uh, look at somatic mutations in cells that don't amplify themselves and divide out of control. So you have unlimited amounts of tissue and DNA to study. And so I'll be talking a little bit about somatic mutations that occur in the brain uh, and, not, and may or may not be present in the other tissues of the body. So then in some cases, these somatic mutations are present in the blood cells. In many cases, they're not. They're limited to the brain, and you can only find them by studying the brain. And so we're only really starting to understand what other kinds of diseases beyond cancer can be caused by these somatic mutations. So the genome is under constant pressure from all sorts of insults. There might be uh, mutations as the cells divide, like I was just talking about, that are inherited uh, by the daughter cells of that. There might be some mutations that cause the cell to die and disappear and so are not seen in the adult. You might have mutations that occur early and generate a large clone of mutated cells. You might have mutations that occur later and cause it smaller clone of mutated cells. And of course, there are lots of causes of mutation, radiation, uh, <coughs> chemical mutagens, uh, free radicals, and so on. And so we know that these mutations occur. Uh, and as I say, we know that they cause cancer. But we don't really know how common they are in the various cells of the body in general, because we don't have the technology to study the mutations that occur in one cell and not in another. And that technology has really only become available in the last few years. So we know that tumor cells are marked by various kinds of somatic mutations shown here in a map of the genome, where the, the genome is a circle, and the various uh, colors represent all the sorts of mutations that might occur uh, in a tumor, whether it's a deletion, uh, otherwise known as a loss of heterozygosity, or various sorts of point mutations, and so on. And it's hypothesized that somatic mutations are what makes us, uh, are what makes me look so much older than I used to look a few years ago, uh, that they accumulate in some way with age, and they are part, uh, they are uh, responsible for some of the aging process. They might be responsible for the sort of normal uh, cognitive uh, <coughs> decline that occurs with aging, as well as potentially involved in all sorts of de uh, degenerative diseases. But we don't really know uh, exactly the mechanism or exactly how that might happen. And so recently, it's become uh, recognized that somatic mutations 
cause not only cancers, but they cause certain sorts of developmental diseases as well. Uh, so um, it's been understood that, there, that some of these disorders of the skin represent somatic mutations. Many skin lesions are probably somatic mutations. Uh, that recently, a couple of overgrowth syndromes have been described, things like Proteus syndrome that are, known, that are somatic mutations. Again, present in some cells and not others. And I'll tell you about an overgrowth syndrome of the brain. So since this is a grand rounds, I'll start with a case. Uh, and it's a pediatric case, not an adult case. Uh, and it's a child uh, that, had, that was born and from the day of birth had intractable epilepsy. And he had overgrowth of one hemisphere. So it's called hemimegalencephaly. Half of the brain is too large, and cephaly just means brain. And so uh, hopefully you can see here that this half of the brain here is bigger than that half of the brain. This is a, uh, an axial view of the, of the MRI scan. This is a coronal view where this half of the brain, uh, which is actually the right half of the brain by radiographic convention, uh, is overgrown. And in fact, uh, this child had intractable epilepsy it was left-sided weakness because this overgrown right side of the brain really didn't do much uh, and didn't function properly. Uh, and so in a desperate attempt to control his intractable epilepsy, neurosurgeons removed essentially the entire right hemisphere of his brain. And so here, you see that right hemisphere missing and replaced by this bright white uh, CSF. Uh, and for him, this was a remarkable life-saving procedure. Uh, he went on to have no seizures for six years. He learned to walk. He now speaks fluently, and uh, he has some left-sided weakness, as you might imagine. But in fact, uh, he's had a life where he would never have had one before. And his name is Dante. I use his name and picture with the permission of his parents. And uh, here he is. Dante's a 10-year-old boy. Um, and although the right side of his brain is removed, he still acts like a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> so you see that he so, tends to awesome. gaze to the left more than to the right because but, um, of the absence of that right hemisphere. His right, his left but, arm I mean, rather is quite you know, weak. Uh, but in fact, again, his gaze is quite weak and his speech is quite weak. is weaker and is not able to do a lot of the fine motor skills that, you know, that, that his right hand can do. Um, but, I mean, he, he's, he goes to school. I mean, he can read. Uh, he talks. Uh, you know, he, he loves, he's been riding horses since he was one year old. And uh, he loves bowling. Well, his, his, his major love is bowling. And, you know, we, we're bowling all the time. We got, we got each other on bowling balls and you know, bowling shoes. And, and it's something he can do because you know, we only need the right side of your body to do it. You know, it, he's acting silly right now, but this is how he acts um, all the time. I mean, he could be in the hospital for four months at a time. And he has his, this silly attitude and he just wants to read and he wants to... Um, be happy and he wants to make others proud. And so I think he, he has a, um, a drive within him that has helped him come so far because, you know, so I just kind the, of find it amazing the worst you know, of times when, do when maybe really the seizures have returned and, and we're back in the um, hospital and the neurosurgeons the come along and they really don't have any answers for me. They'll say, well, wow, I'm just really impressed with who he's become. You know, I never really thought he'd be who he is today. And, and he's just, he, he likes to prove everybody wrong, and, and, um, and I love that about him. So um, about almost 10 years ago now, a child neurologist working in my lab, Ann Paduri, tried to figure out what's going, what's the matter in cases of hemimegalencephaly? How do you uh, get that half of the brain that overgrows like that? And it's typically exactly half of the brain that overgrows. Uh, uh, and that's how the syndrome gets its name. And so uh, she, we only had a few cases where the brain had been removed. We thought that it was probably a mutation that was in the brain and not necessarily detectable in the blood. Uh, and so she started by doing genotyping and found that in three cases, part of chromosome 1 appeared to be amplified, by, represented by this darker pink. This is a schematic of chromosome 1, and the entire Q-arm looks like it was amplified in two out of these uh, eight of these six cases. And it wasn't exactly three copies of chromosome, of the long arm of chromosome one. It was somewhere between two and three, which made us think that it was probably a, some of the cells in the brain had th extra copies of chromosome two, but not all of the cells of the brain. That it was probably a mutation that had, that had occurred as the brain was developing in the progenitor cells that give rise to the brain. <laughs> and in fact, there's a gene on the very distal uh, so we sat on that result for about a half a dozen years, and then a gene on the very end of chromosome 1 called AKT3 
emerged as a likely candidate gene because when it's deleted, it causes the brain to be too small. And because it's known that AKT genes are oncogenes and can be activated and regulate proliferation. And so uh, we've, we hypothesized that if the gene was overactive, it might also cause the brain to overgrow. Now, these kids don't usually get cancer. They have a stable overgrowth of the brain that makes the brain very dysfunctional. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's a, so it's a little like a cancer in that there's an overgrowth, but it's a stable overgrowth as opposed to an oncogenic one. So in Dante's brain, we sequenced AKT3, and this is what we found, uh, that uh, the, a, the sequence of AKT3 had a normal sequence except at one spot where there seemed to be two peaks instead of the normal peak. There seemed to be this extra peak which, was, which causes a known oncogenic mutation in AKT3. It, it substitutes um, E for, for K at position 17. And this is a mutation which is known in AKT1 as an oncogenic mutation and had been previously described in AKT3 as a mutation that causes it to be overactive. But in fact, the, again, the, the, the little peak is almost unrecognizable because it's much smaller than the normal peak, suggesting that the mutation is only present in a minority of the cells. And in fact, when we looked in the blood, Dante's blood does not show that mutation, even when you look really, really hard for it. And so it looks like, indeed, it was a mutation that occurred only in the brain cells and not in the blood cells. And it occurred in about a third of the cells when you actually, uh, uh, you know, quantitated. And as I say, this had been previously reported as an activating mutation. And so hemimegalencephaly actually is due to a gain of AKT3 activity in a quarter of the cases, and then the spontaneous point mutation in another one of the cases. And subsequently, uh, simultaneous work in other labs identified other activating mutations in the same AKT pathway uh, that seemed to cause the same phenotype. Now, uh, for a long time, it was known that the most common cause of intractable epilepsy in kids is a much smaller overgrowth lesion known as a focal cortical dysplasia. And you can see one here in the very frontal cortex as this bright area. There's a small, subtle one here. Uh, there's a next, another one here that only are one or two centimeters large. Here's one in the back of the cortex. They can occur in any part of the cortex. And they're just one or two centimeters in size. They're notably abnormal by MRI scan, and they typically cause intractable focal epilepsy arising right from that lesion, and they typically respond very well to surgery. Uh, if they're in a non-fluent part of the brain, you can generally excise them and frequently can cause uh, substantial improvement or, not uncommonly, complete remission of the seizures. Um, and as I say, these are a common cause of intractable epilepsy, and it was also hypothesized that these were probably some sort of somatic mutation as well. And uh, work from our lab and many other labs in just in the last few months have shown that these, in fact, are also gain-of-function mutations in the same genes. Uh, the difference in the shape of the lesion appears not to relate to the types of genes that are involved, but, in fact, probably to the timing at which the mutation occurs, that these mutations occur later in development and affect, consequently, a much smaller proportion of the cells, both as a fraction of the cells and also as a geographic extent of the abnormal cells. And so activating mutations in the PI3 kinase uh, genes, which again are known oncogenic mutations, uh, can cause some forms of either hemimegalencephaly or focal cortical dysplasia. Activating mutations in AKT3, activating mutations in AKT1, <coughs> activating mutations in mTOR itself, which is basically the, the target of this whole pathway. This is called the mTOR pathway or the amino acid sensing pathway or the growth factor signaling pathway. This is one of the most central pathways to the metabolism and growth of cells. Uh, and then you can actually, uh, we recently showed, get exactly the exact same lesions by double hits in two genes, DEPDC5 or the tuber sclerosis genes, which are negative regulators of this pathway. And so they cause hyperactivation of the mTOR pathway uh, by a similar uh, mechanism. So uh, it turns out somatic mutations then can occur, can cause a variety of subtle lesions of the brain. And there are different kinds of somatic mutations that can cause uh, brain disorders. There are these obligatory somatic mutations, like the AKT3 mutation that I just described. So these are mutations that, uh, as far as we know, never occur in the germline, probably because they would destroy the embryo and are lethal. And so you only ever observe them as somatic mutations, either in cancer or in these developmental disorders. And these in include hemimegalencephaly and a variety of, as I said, 
overgrowth syndromes that can affect the hand, that can affect the leg, if they happen to occur in the precursors of, of those tissues rather than the precursors of the brain. And then there are also uh, somatic mutations that can cause milder versions of diseases that typically occur uh, in the germline. And uh, so we know that almost all um, dominantly occurring mutations that cause very severe phenotypes uh, can occur as mutations in the germline and be present in all of the cells of the body. But in fact, they can also occur later. Uh, they can occur like here. Instead of the mutation occurring spontaneously in the germline during meiosis, they can occur spontaneously during mitosis and can affect the brain, but also in some cases can be detectable in the blood cells as well. And so about the same time we were discovering the, the causes of hemimegalencephaly, a medical genetics fellow by the name of Samuel Januar <coughs> started wondering how common are these somatic mosaic mutations in general as a cause of brain malformations that we hadn't been able to otherwise understand. And so he took uh, blood DNA from uh, 158 patients with brain malformations, and he was looking then for somatic mutations that were detectable in the blood so that they were, occur they were in not all of the cells of the body, so they weren't going to be in all of the blood cells or all of the brain cells, but they were going to be in enough of the blood cells so that we could at least detect them by studying blood. And he, what he did was he uh, took a panel of suspected genes and he sequenced them at very, very high coverage so that even if the mutation was only present in one or two or five percent of the cells, we would still be able to detect it. Uh, and separate it from the noise of the sequencing technology. So he used a special custom array that gave us, uh, you know, 300 fold coverage. So as I say, we could detect mutations even if they're only in a minority of cells. And this is something which is not generally done diagnostically. And what he found was that, in fact, of the mutations that he identified, uh, almost uh, more than a quarter of them were actually somatic mosaic mutations that were present, again, in some of the cells of the blood, but not all. And this shows an example. So these are basically uh, eight different patients, and they had mutations in a variety of genes, and this shows the proportion of the cells that actually carried that mutation, uh, just rated from the patient with the smallest fraction of cells mutated to the patient with the largest number of cells mutated. And it shows basically three patients that all have mutations in the same gene that causes a phenotype we're familiar with. This is what it looks like if there's a germline mutation in this gene uh, where it's present in all of the cells of the body. It's a dominant disorder, so 50% of the alleles, it's heterozygous, so there's one mutation on one copy and a normal copy in the other. So 100% of the cells carry the mutation in the heterozygous state. And in this case, all the cells then of the brain behave abnormally, and they cause a uh, a very severe malformation of the brain where there's none of the normal folds that characterize the brain. We call this disorder lysencephaly. Well, here's a, here's a patient that has a different mutation in the same gene, but only in 50% of the cells instead of 100% of the cells. And what you see is the brain is a mixture then of normal and abnormal cells. There are cells that no migrate to the normal place where their cortical cells are supposed to be, and then there's this population of cells that are stuck beneath the cortex uh, as though they are expressing the mutation and failing to migrate. And then here's another mutation, a, a different patient, that has, again, a, a, this, a different mutation but the same gene, but now only in a third of the cells are carrying the mutation, and now the brain is looking more and more normal. It has a much better folding, and you see that there's a, a subtle band of abnormally migrated cells representing that one-third of the cells that now carry the mutation. Um, and so uh, this, these these tracks just show the proportion of cells that carry the mutation as determined by a couple of different technologies. Well, here's an example of another gene where, again, we found uh, a couple of patients with different mutations in the same gene. This particular gene is on the X chromosome. If a male carries the gene, he, has a, he only will carry the mutant uh, version of it, and it will be present in 100% of the cells. And again, he gets a very, very severe <coughs> malformation of the brain. Females, because they have two X chromosomes, get a milder version where half of the cells migrate normally and half migrate abnormally. But then here's a female that carries the mutation in only 30% of the cells. And again, the brain is looking more normal with only a, a fainter pattern of, of abnormally migrated cells. And finally, here's a patient that only carries the mutation in 10% of the cells. And so you can only barely detect a couple of, uh, a small population of cells that migrate abnormally, and the brain looks much more normal. And so there's this dose-response curve 
between the proportion of cells that carry the mutation and the severity of the clinical phenotype, the severity in this case of the seizures and the intellectual disability, and the severity of the radiographic abnormality. So somatic mutations are clinically important. They represent uh, a fraction of genetic disease that we have to specifically go looking for by using these high coverage methods. Uh, and they're typically not seen by whole exome sequencing because that only covers the genome about 30 or 40 times. So if your mutation is present in 10% of the cells, it would typically be ignored in the algorithms that analyze whole exome sequence. Um, and so uh, this is a sort of a complementary way of trying to diagnose people with genetic disorders. If they don't have uh, something detected by whole exome sequence, we should think about these, uh, these specific targeted gene panels. Walking back here, I keep. So the other um, thing about this is that you can get a very severe disorder of the brain by mutating only about 10% or 20% of the cells. Uh, and this actually was surprising uh, that, that, you know, that you can get such severe abnormalities of the brain from only a minority of the cells affected. And this may reflect the fact that the brain is so highly interconnected. And if you carry a mutation in just uh, you know, one weak link in a very, very large interconnected circuit, it might make that circuit uh, perform very abnormally. And so this then makes, me, makes us wonder how many other diseases are out there where you can actually get a severe phenotype in the brain by mutating only maybe a quarter or a third of the cells. And so there are likely to be uh, a host of other diseases that might be reflecting these somatic mutations, both in the brain and potentially in other tissues as well. So um, while these um, studies were underway, we started wondering just how much does the genome of one cell differ from the genome of another cell, and specifically in the case of neurons. And Ben and uh, two students in the lab, Gilad Avroni and Shu Yukai, uh, started trying to develop technologies to systematically interrogate how much genomic variability is there from one cell to another in the brain. You can have large-scale changes like gains or losses of chromosomes or large deletions or duplications. You can have smaller-scale things like mobilization of retrotransposons or other kinds of mobile elements or smaller deletions. You can have very small-scale things like uh, point mutations, otherwise known as single nucleotide variants, or you can have unstable repeats or small deletions or duplications. And all of these might actually, in principle, maybe there's some of this that's good for the brain. Maybe it generates the tremendous diversity of cell types that we see in the brain. But it's also potentially bad for the brain because it might cause mutations of essential genes and might cause some of this somatic genetic disease. And we really don't know. Uh, and in fact, there's a, a lot of neuroscientists who are very excited about the possibility that there might be that the, gene, the brain might have to undergo various kinds of genomic rearrangements or uh, genomic diversity in order to, to uh, generate the diversity of cell types that are characterized in the brain. So we wanted to test that hypothesis to systematically understand what do the genomes of single neurons look like. Is this a cause of unexplained disease? How much does a normal person show in the way of mutations of cells in the brain? And to what extent might this contribute to the phenotypic diversity of neurons in normal brains? So to do that, you have to look at the genome of a single cell uh, and systematically <coughs> compare the genome of one cell to another. Uh, and to do that, you have to separate cells in the brain into single cells and then put one cell or one nucleus in uh, different tubes and amplify the entire genome of a single cell and sequence it and compare the genome of one cell to the genome of another cell. And so uh, we developed technologies to do that, uh, which is something which has been, uh, you may have heard about other people talking about single cell genomics of cancer cells. It's been very informative to try to understand the diversity of cancer cells by comparing the different lineages that exist within tumors. So we've applied this simultaneously to that other work uh, to look at the brain. And it's remarkable the extent to which you can take the genome of a single cell, pass it through a, an, a, a cell sorter, put them into tubes, uh, and amplify the whole genome uh, most of the time. It's remarkable that the chromosomes don't fall out of the nucleus uh, while you're doing all this, but uh, by using multiple different technologies, we're able to show that you really recover about 90% of the genome fairly reliably. Um, and so if you can do a whole genome sequence of the genome of a, the amplified genome of a single cell, you recover, uh, again, about 90% of the genome. And this just looks like with the DNA sequence of uh, 
uh, of the brain to begin with. The unamplified brain shows these. This is a segment of the of the genome, and this is what just the, g the genome sequences that we look at. These are the variants that would be identified, and you see that the genome of a single neuron looks pretty much like the genome sequence of the whole brain, uh, by and large, uh, showing that you can get accurate genome sequence of single cells. And so when we did this, we, we first looked at Dante's brain to get a sense of, uh, well, you know, what proportion of the cells carry the mutation, and how, the, how do they distribute in the brain? And we confirmed what we had known before, that about a third of the cells carry the mutation. Uh, and, the, and here, so here is the genome of a cell that carries the mutation. And when you see a cell that carries the mutation, it looks like a normal heterozygous mutation in that cell. And there are other cells that lack the mutation. So indeed, the brain is a mixture of mutant cells and unmutated cells. And there are both neurons and glial cells. These are glial cells down here that are heterozygous for the mutation. Uh, and in fact, this, this is surprising that you see this mutation in only a minority of the cells, but distributed over the entire hemisphere. So there's a lot of mixing in the brain. So compared to tumors, where cells that carry the mutation tend to aggregate in the tumor and then metastasize uh, in pieces, in the brain we have tremendous intermingling between cells carrying the mutation and cells not carrying the mutation, which was a surprise. So uh, the first question we wanted to look at in terms of the genomics of single cells was uh, retrotransposition of mobile elements, because uh, there had been several papers that had suggested that that mobile elements in neurons were unstable and liked to flip around, uh, and that this might be an important part of neurogenesis. So line elements are one type of retrotransposon, and they were proposed to be the specific kind of retrotransposon that tended to move around the human genome. And so line elements normally sit in our DNA, uh, and they're usually pretty well-behaved and quiet, but they do occasionally retrotranspose. They form an RNA intermediate that then goes out into the cytoplasm, can be, it re becomes reverse transcribed to form a DNA copy, and then that DNA copy can go back into the nucleus and insert somewhere to form a copy. So that this line element has been copied and pasted somewhere else in the genome. Uh, and this can cause mutations by inserting into a gene and breaking the gene in two. <coughs> it can cause a deletion when it inserts. It can actually carry a piece of the genome from one place to another, and so these uh, retrotransposition events are, are an important cause of diversity in the genome evolutionarily, or, um, and there are, two there are various ways that that can happen. And so there's only one known type of retrotransposon that seems to be active in our genomes, and these are called human-specific line elements, or L1HSs, uh, and they're a subfamily of line elements. <coughs> And in total, there are about 800 of these in our genome, of which only about 300 are full length. Only about 60 look like they actually are intact. And only a handful are actually thought to be active uh, and haven't been mutated or inactivated in some way over history. But in fact, as I say, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about whether retrotransposition of these line elements might be very active, uh, particularly in the human brain. And as you probably are aware, Martha McClintock won the Nobel Prize for work she did in corn that showed that this variation of color in maize is due, in fact, to activation of these mobile elements that changes the genome very, very substantially. So we know that, this, that these um, retrotransposons can, in certain cell types, be very active and very mutagenic. And so we wanted to test the hypothesis that line elements were active uh, in the human brain. And, uh, as I say, people have, so have proposed that there might be dozens of events per genome, that all of the cells might have uh, a dozen or more uh, retrotransposons that have jumped from one place to another. Um, and they've proposed that it might be part and parcel of the formation of neurons. And we were frankly worried that this might cause a lot of mutations and might be really bad for the brain. And so we were a little skeptical that retrotransposition was going to be uh, so commonplace. And so we, in order to look at retrotransposition, we, se we separated cells into single wells, and then we specifically used an, uh, a, an amplification method to specifically tag all of the line elements in the genome, all, all 800 of them, and analyze them uh, in one cell and compare them to another cell, and then see how many of these line elements were present in some cells and not present in others, reflecting these retrotransposition events. 
Um, and we looked at three different normal individuals, and we did 300 single cells, 100 each from three different normal people, to try to get a sense of the landscape of retrotransposition mobilization. Uh, and this is what the sequence looks like. Here's an, a line element in the genome, and um, it's tagged by these sequence reads. Uh, here, the line element would live here, and then this method gives you a lot of DNA sequence reads that are right next to it. And this is what it looks like in unamplified DNA. And this is what it looks like when you look at the DNA of a single cell. You can recognize that same line element by all the sequence reads, although there's more noise. Uh, there are these reads that look like they might be coming from a line element, but they're actually just noise from the amplification uh, when you amplify either 100 cells or when you amplify single cells. And so there's a lot of analysis that has to go into separating these uh, artifactual amplification uh, artifacts from the bona fide insertion events. And I won't go into the details of that. Uh, Peter Park's laboratory, with whom we collaborated, had to go through uh, uh, a variety of tools for analyzing these data. You have to do a lot of validation of the uh, potential insertion events. Um, and as I say, this is all very technical. But in fact, you can see that these line element retrotransposition events do occur. And when you see them, they're very, very clear. Uh, and so this is a, a line element that had started in a different chromosome and that jumped into this site on chromosome 15. We could validate it uh, by resequencing it and PCRing it. We found it in two neurons and not in the other 298 neurons. And so that we knew that it was a somatic event, and, but actually it was shared by two neurons. And so that we know that it didn't occur in the neurons themselves, but occurred in the mother cell that generated these two cells and was inherited as a clonal event. So the retrotransposon occurred here and labeled a clone of cells in the brain that all carried this same retrotransposon event. And as I say, this, we could validate this in any way we, uh, we wanted to. And in fact, we could even identify where it came from. So this came from a, um, a known line element sitting in chromosome 8 that had copied itself and jumped uh, into a, a different location on chromosome 15. So indeed, these line elements do retrotranspose in the brain, although we found that they occurred at a very low rate, uh, that most neurons don't seem to have them at all. And uh, then, in fact, after doing this PCR method, we wanted to be really sure, so we sequenced the entire genome of a smaller number of cells, uh, including uh, two cells that we knew contained line elements. Um, and uh, we found that, um, I'll just skip to the summary, actually, because I, this is sort of detailed, that basically when we profiled these 300 single neurons, we found that most cells um, lacked detectable line element insertions, that there was, on average, fewer than one per genome. And the whole genome sequence showed, again, that 12 out of the 16 cells had no identifiable somatic retrotransposition events, but four of the cells did, and that each, and they, and they represented two clonal events that both had occurred in progenitor cells and then uh, been inherited by uh, the daughter cells of the original mutated cell. So I find that most neurons in the brain uh, don't show somatic retrotransposition events. It does indeed occur, but in a minority of the cells. Uh, it's probably a source of mutation, because if it occurs early on, and if, it, and if it happens to drop right into an important part of a gene, it could generate a mutation. Uh, but it's not likely to be an obligate part of neurogenesis. It's not likely that neurons must undergo this kind of genomic rearrangement in order to express their fate as a neuron. Um, and what, we, what we're very interested in is whether certain disease states might show higher rates of retrotransposition, as we know that certain <laughs> cancers show high rates of somatic retrotransposition. And so it's possible that certain brain diseases might show elevated rates of somatic retrotransposition and hence higher rates, um, and, and hence higher rates of uh, somatic mutation in the brain. So the next question we wanted to look at is whether neurons were aneuploid. Uh, it had been proposed that many neurons in the brain were aneuploid. You know, the brain doesn't undergo or neurons, at least, don't undergo mitosis, and so they don't have to worry about cancer the way cells uh, in most other tissues have to worry about cancer. And so it had been, again, proposed that maybe the tremendous diversity of neurons is mirrored at the genomic level, where neurons might have uh, an extra chromosome or might be missing a chromosome, again, in an attempt to generate widespread neuronal diversity. So here, we looked at whole genome sequence of single uh, neurons, and we developed a method to count 
the different chromosomes, and we tested it by looking at a brain that we know had an extra copy of chromosome 18, and we knew we can detect that extra copy of chromosome 18, because here's basically six different cells uh, that, that carry extra copies of chromosome 18, and every single time we can see, we can detect that trisomy 18. So we know we can detect changes in copy number, even at the single cell level. But when, and in fact, a different patient with hemimegalencephaly, we knew had this extra copies of chromosome 2, we, looked, we, we found we could even detect that, uh, sorry, that extra copy of chromosome, the long arm of chromosome 1, we found we could even detect that extra copy of the long arm of chromosome 1 at a single cell level by an increase in copy number. And you see the copy number at single cells is pretty noisy, but uh, nonetheless, we can see that extra copy <coughs> number. In fact, we could quantitate it, and we found out that that extra copy number is not a, 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 a three copy of, chrom of the long arm of chromosome 1, but it's actually a four copy. So it's actually a, um, not a duplication, but a triplication of the long arm of chromosome 1, corresponding to 4x instead of 2x. Uh, and it's probably actually uh, an isodicentric chromosome 1q, which has been previously described in pediatric tumors. So we know have an we have an accurate way of looking at copy number uh, in single cells. But again, uh, it looks like aneuploidy, the loss of a whole chromosome, uh, is very rare in single cells in the brain, which again is sort of what we expected. Typical neurons uh, have all of their chromosomes intact. Probably a couple of percent of neurons are indeed missing a chromosome or <laughs> duplicated a chromosome. Uh, but, a typical, but on the other hand, a typical neuron will, will have large deletions or duplications, um, which um, you know, are often things that, that would be disease-causing if they were in the germline. So a typical neuron has at least one large megabase size copy number variation, meaning a deletion or duplication, and that some of these occurred in progenitor cells uh, and are uh, shared then by multiple single cells. And uh, this is work that actually several labs uh, came, arrived at, at approximately the same time that these, that again, that neurons in the brain usually have the right number of chromosomes, but frequently are, uh, are missing or duplicated for segments of the genome. And so this is just what our neurons look like. Uh, uh, one, uh, some of the neurons have none of these large copy number variations. One, a couple of neurons have like a dozen large copy number variations, and the average is a couple per cell. Uh, and they can be very, very large, as big as 20 megabases, uh, and typically on the order of a couple of megabases. This is a copy number. Sometimes the same copy number variation is shared by two different neurons, meaning it probably occurred uh, during mitosis. And sometimes you see copy number variations that are associated with diseases in the brains of normal individuals. So that uh, this is a patient, this is a, a normal person that some of their cells carries a duplication of chromosome 15, which has been reported to be a common chromosome abnormality in kids that have severe autism spectrum disorders. So that if, this, if that disorder, if this uh, duplication were present in all the cells of the body, this person would be severely intellectually disabled and autistic. But again, it's present in only some of the neurons of the brain, and so this uh, person seems to be normal. So probably all of our brains have a variety of mutations, which if we had them in the germline, uh, would give us a variety of diseases. And so finally, most recently, in work that's not yet published, we've been looking at the variety of point mutations. Uh, in, we've been looking at mutations throughout the whole genome of single cells. Uh, and by doing, to do that, we sequence the entire genome at a very high density. And we look for mutations that are shared by all of the neurons, and then we look for mutations that are present in some neur single neurons and not in others. Uh, and this is work done by two postdoctoral fellows, Mike Lodato and Molly Woodworth. Uh, and, um, and this shows you what, you what it looks like. This is the, the genome sequence of four different single cells from the brain, and then the genome sequence of the heart of that same person. And the red highlights a point at which there's a mutation. So this cell clearly has a mutation at that site, but it's unique to that cell and not seen in the other single cells or in the heart. Here's a mutation in this cell and not in the other cells. Here's a mutation that's shared between these two cells and not in the others. Here's a mutation that's shared in all three of the cells, but absent from the heart of the same individual. And so what we've done is count the numbers of mutations and determine which ones are, are in a single neuron and then which ones are shared by multiple neurons. And so which ones uh, probably occurred developmentally and which ones might have occurred in the neuron after it was no longer dividing. 
And overall, we found about 2,000 point mutations per genome. So as a source of variability, point mutations vastly outweigh retrotransposon insertions or copy number variation. And this was in three different uh, people, the postmortem brains of three different people who, as far as we know, were completely typical neurologically. We find about a couple of, a dozen or more of these point mutations occur in the coding parts of the genome and so are likely to change the function in most cases of the gene in which they occur. And most of the, the vast majority of these thousands of point mutations are present just in a single neuron uh, and so are absent in other single neurons. But occasionally we find one that are shared between multiple neurons and occur during development. So then we wanted to find out what causes them. We assumed that they were caused by cell division by mitosis and, by, uh, and that occurred during DNA replication the same way cancer mutations are, are formed. But we actually were surprised to find that some of them probably are caused by DNA replication, but that uh, many of them and the majority of them are probably caused by a different mechanism, specifically the transcription itself, the expression of genes, which we know can occasionally mutate the gene while it's being expressed. And so we found that, in fact, the coding parts of the genome tended to have more mutations than the non-coding parts of the genome. Uh, and so that if you look at intergenic regions, they were relatively depleted for mutations compared to um, the genome in general. Uh, but that, uh, as I say, the coding parts of the genome here tended to have mutations more commonly. And also the, the, the genes that we know are expressed in the brain had a higher rate of mutation than the genes that are not expressed in the brain. And in fact, if you look at all of the genes that carry mutation in a single neuron, and then you ask, what sorts of genes are these that are carrying mutations? You see that, in fact, they're frequently genes that are essential to the neuron. They're involved in the development of the neuron or the neuron's function or the morphogenesis of the cell in general. And so it looks like the very genes that are most important for the brain are the ones that preferentially carry mutations, because apparently because they, uh, many mutations occur during the actual transcription of genes. Uh, other evidence for this is the fact that the types of bases that are, that are mutated are highly, highly biased. So there's a certain number of mutations that can affect any nucleotide, but there's a vast excess of mutations at a particular nucleotide, which is a signature of the mutation that occurs during transcription. Uh, and so we know that when genes are expressed, the DNA has to open up, it has to become single-stranded, and we know that this process, uh, that DNA, when it's single-stranded, is very fragile, and it's very liable to being mutated. And we know also that cells have extensive uh, processes for repairing the DNA when it gets mutated, but we know that these processes are not perfect. And so some of the mutations that occur during transcription appear not to be completely uh, repaired. And I thought in here uh, somewhere, right, okay. Uh, and so then this again just shows that if you look at genes that are expressed in neurons, they're preferentially uh, mutated. And again, if you look at the genes that carry these mutations, uh, in many cases, you'll see a mutation in a gene which you know is essential for brain function, and if it occurred in the germline, it would cause a disease. So here's a gene called SCN1A, which, uh, which is a sodium channel, which is one of the most common causes of intractable epilepsy of children. Uh, and here's a mutation that would be very likely to be disease-causing, but it's only in one neuron. Uh, and so, uh, it, it, again, it occurs in the brain of a normal person. Here's a, a gene that's been associated with schizophrenia and which has a mutation that causes a stop codon, completely removes the function of that gene, but again, only as far as we know from that single neuron. And so uh, all of us, again, likely carry mutations uh, in uh, the single cells of our brain uh, that are uh, highly deleterious. Now, the next question is, do these accumulate with age? If they occur during transcription, it makes sense that the more you use your genes, the more you uh, lose your genes, the more you uh, mutate them. And so this is a very scary concept for someone like me uh, who's getting old. Uh, and we don't really know the answer to that yet. We've only looked at three, we weren't really looking, we didn't design the experiments to look specifically for an age-related effect because we didn't expect to, to stumble into one. Uh, we, we looked at three different 
typical neurotypical people and only a couple of cells from each brain, a 42-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 15-year-old, it certainly looks like the mutations are more common in the 42-year-old. This difference is actually technically statistically significant, but I really don't want to claim that they accumulate with age until we <coughs> analyze much older brains and much younger brains to get more of a sense. Uh, but our sense is they likely do uh, accumulate uh, as we use the genes in our brain. And, so th and this is likely true of all the tissues of our body, that uh, the kidney or the lung uh, accumulates mutations with age and preferentially in those genes that are most highly transcribed <coughs> in that particular tissue, but we haven't specifically tested the hypothesis in other tissues. <coughs> and so uh, then finally, we can look at these shared mutations. As I told you, that some of the mutations occur in single cells only, and then some occur in many cells. And these, the, these shared mutations are actually a map of where the brain came from. Uh, since they occur every time a cell divides, the shared mutations are a map of, of how the cells that generate the brain are originally arrayed and how the cells that derive from a common progenitor get to where they're going. And this is a, 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 a topic which is of intense interest to if people like me who are interested in brain development, or probably a little less interested interesting to other people in the audience, but it's something that we've, we've been able to start to look at by looking at shared mutations uh, within these cells that we sequenced. And what we found is that there are a bunch of uh, mutations that were shared by these two particular neurons. They shared a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a handful of mutations in common. And then there were other mutations that were shared by these two cells plus another cell. And then there was a, a separate batch of mutations that were shared by these guys, but not these guys, and then other mutations that were shared by these cells, but not those, and, muta and mutations that were shared by other cells in, uh, as well. And so we actually can get a sense that these different pots of cells are actually different lineages uh, that contribute to uh, the overall brain. And actually, we, we genotyped these variants in a couple of hundred cells and found that we could organize uh, more than half of these couple of hundred cells into lineage trees. So that we found a bunch of cells that shared uh, this mutation, and some but not all of those cells shared a second mutation. And so these cells all derive from a common progenitor that we can uh, you know, trace back uh, to a fairly early stage in development. We found a much larger number of cells that shared this mutation, this bluish mutation, and then a fraction of them shared um, this mutation, and a smaller fraction this mutation, and a smaller fraction this one, and just these two cells shared all of these different mutations. And so, again, we, we have another lineage defined by this early mutation, and then sub-lineages defined by these later mutations that occur in later cell divisions. And again, another lineage here, traceable back to an early stage. And in fact, each of these lineages we can trace back to before the brain separated from the other tissues. So that, in fact, these mutations are present in the brain, but not outside the brain. But then the deeper mutation of that same lineage is, is present both in the brain and the non-brain tissues. Or in this lineage here, these mutations are unique to the brain, and, these, and this mutation is present outside the brain as well. So this mutation occurred very early before gastrulation, before the brain separated from other tissues. And then these later mutations occurred in brain progenitor cells. And so, in principle, uh, by identifying more of these mutations, we can construct the, how the brain uh, derived. And uh, in fact, we can now map these mutations across the brain. And I'll skip this technological piece here. Uh, and so we find that there's one mutation that we identified in cells of the medial frontal gyrus. And everywhere we look in the medial frontal gyrus, we can detect that mutation. And that happens to be one of the line elements. But as soon as we look outside of the medial frontal gyrus, that mutation is absent. And so this is a mutation that occurred in progenitor cells that only gave rise to this particular gyrus of the brain. Uh, and then there's another mutation, uh, this green mutation, which we can find out th all throughout one half of the brain. Uh, but it's not present in the other half of the brain. And so it's remarkable how these two line elements actually, in their distribution through the brain, look just like these two most common forms of somatic mutation that cause disease. So this blue uh, line element has a distribution almost exactly like a focal cortical dysplasia, suggesting that focal cortical dysplasias occur by an activating mTOR mutation that occurs at about the same time as this mutation occurs and gives rise to a distribution of cells about like this clone, except that these are very abnormal cells that are highly epileptic. 
And hemimegalencephaly arises from a mutation remarkably like this line element mutation that occurs at an earlier stage where the progeny cells are distributed throughout half of the whole brain. Uh, but again, it's a different kind of mutation. It's not a silent mutation. It's an activating mutation that causes hyperactivation of mTOR and causes this highly epileptic state. And so these disease-associated mutations in the brain then look like they track uh, the, the normal development of the brain, uh, but they cause disease because they're disease-associated mutations. And so we find, actually, that the brain is remarkably diverse in its clonal origins, that these several lineages uh, are marked by mutations that occur very early. Uh, and then there's a lot of intermingling of neurons between these various lineages uh, that you can, these distinct lineages that you can trace back to an early stage. So again, we have one brain, but that one brain contains many, many different genomes. That every neuron has a distinctive genome in terms of its mutational content. And the same is true of all the cells of our body, that every gene in the genome is probably mutated somewhere in our body. It, that these clonal somatic mutations in the brain can cause disease. We don't know how common they are as a cause of disease. We don't know whether they might be a cause of some of the great complex unsolved neuropsychiatric diseases like bipolar disease or schizophrenia, for which it's been difficult so far to identify robust genetic causes. Uh, Tom Insel, the director of the NIMH, wrote an essay recently where he specifically proposed that somatic mutations might be the dark matter of psychiatric genetics uh, and the cause of some of these mysterious disorders. We don't know what the tipping point is for somatic mutations. What fraction of cells in the brain do you need to mutate before it starts creating a phenotype? Uh, we know that somatic mutations are common in normal people, uh, either by line elements, which are relatively rare, either by copy number variants, which occur uh, about once per genome, and especially by these point mutations, which are very numerous. But fortunately, only about 1% of these point mutations affect the coding parts of the genome. Do they sculpt the normal brain? Uh, you know, all of us are better at some things than others. We know that identical twins don't have identical capabilities. And so uh, is some of that difference between people due to these random mutations that, as far as we can tell, are random. Uh, they can occur in any cell type and any part of the genome about equally. Are they more common in certain disease states? That seems likely. They might be more common in some cells than others. Uh, and uh, we know that then, and it, are the expression of germline mutations filtered by this haze of somatic mutations? Might these somatic mutations be responsible for things like the variable penetrance? that we see uh, where two different people with the same genetic lesion have relatively different uh, diseases. And finally, they illuminate uh, the developmental history so that, in fact, these point mutations are a permanent record of where a cell has been. They're a record of where the cell comes from developmentally. Uh, they're a record of the cell, every cell division that that cell's gone through and every other cell in the body that it's related to. And they also appear to be a record of the transcriptional history of that cell. Uh, a record that becomes clearer with age because more and more of the mutations that accumulate with age appear to be transcriptional. And so, as I said, this just says again, we don't really know what all the different diseases are. I think I've already made this point that they might affect some parts of the brain more than others. We don't know whether there are other somatic mutations that might be particularly, that might make some people particularly unique. You know, Einstein's brain is known to have a very unusual gyral pattern. Uh, and so you wonder whether he might have had some special positive mutation that might have made his brain shaped a bit differently than normal. So um, I'll just finish by acknowledging the people who did the work. I tried to point them out as we went along. Two very talented students, uh, Ann Fedori, a child neurologist, Samuel Jambu, our medical geneticist, uh, and then and Ben, for all of the help that he gave us when he was in the lab, Alyssa DeGamma, and Mike and Molly, uh, and a great collaboration with Peter Park's lab, uh, without whom we would never have been able to decode all of these somatic mutations. Thanks very much for your attention. In, in thinking about the relative contributions of just proliferation versus, you know, um, uh, somatic mutations associated with specific uh, gene product expression, is is there in, uh, an, an increased observed rate of somatic mutagenesis in, say, uh, non-cancer cells that have proliferative phenotypes like epithelial cells? In other words, is there a hierarchy? Um, Rates uh, amongst so, normal cells. Yeah, so the dividing cells have higher rates of somatic mutation than neurons. 
that's an excellent question, and, and no one's looked. We know very little about the rates of somatic mutation in normal tissues. You know, there's a lot of work on rates in cancer cells. Uh, there was a study of um, kidney cells that uh, suggested that normal kidney cells have about the same rates of coding region mutations as the brain, maybe a little bit higher. And, you know, kidney is not highly proliferative, but it's more proliferative than neurons. Uh, but really, nobody's ever looked at, at a highly proliferative tissue like lung or GI tract or something like that. You would expect it would be higher, but I don't know. Yeah? Are there any known um, germline mutations in the repair mechanisms associated with somatic mutations? So you may, I, I, if, if I understand correctly, you're asking if you have a germline mutation in, say, P53 or leaf or something like that, do you have a higher rate of somatic mutation as a result? Um, again, no one's looked at that. I mean, really, it's, it's just totally brand new. It's, and it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, it's a lot of work to just take a single cell and amplify it and analyze it. And so I don't believe that anyone's ever looked at that. We actually are just starting to do experiments like that ourselves. We're looking at neurons and you know, patients with cocaine syndrome that has transcriptional um, repair defects uh, to, to ask that question. But it's real. We're only at the stage of asking those questions. We don't have to use yeah. Is there an equivalent mouse model for the 1Q uh, copy number variation where one could uh, more closely uh, correlate, say, gene expression, uh, get some idea on the signaling pathways maybe involved, and uh -huh. even associate behavior with those uh, so there are mouse models for some of the uh, activating point mutations of AKT3. Yeah. Uh, there's a naturally occurring mouse that has not the E17K allele, but a milder allele. And indeed, that mouse has a big brain and seizes. But it's a germline mutation. Uh, because, it's, because it's a milder mutation, it, it's, it's viable uh, when present in the germline. And in fact, there are milder AKT3 mutations in humans that cause milder phenotypes, where the whole brain is large, but not so severely large. And the epilepsy is actually milder because AKT3 is not so severely uh, hyperactive. Well, because it's of cancer, it's also a target for many uh, small molecule and drug targets. Yeah, exactly. So these are, are, are models in which people are testing mTOR inhibitors to see if they might be of benefit to control the epilepsy. Uh, and so, in fact, the discovery of all this in hemimegalencephaly and, and even focal cortical dysplasia you know, makes you think that uh, some of these cancer-related mTOR inhibitors, which people would never have thought otherwise to use to treat epilepsy, you know, might be the best treatment for these kids. But again, the, for the focal ones, if it's a part of the brain you can live without, uh, the surgery is really the way to go. Yeah. So I think if I understood correctly, you see a lot more of mutations that are not necessarily like aneuploidy. Um, can you speculate as to why that is, why you get copy number variants rather than aneuploidy? But, um, I think um, aneuploidy... Uh, is more likely to be uh, lethal to the cell. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of aneuploidies would be lethal. So, you know, you would, you would think in order for it to be, I mean, maybe neurons are less sensitive to aneuploidy and better able to tolerate it, although there's no particular reason to think that. Uh, uh, but um, so I think that, you know, copy number variants are probably just more easily tolerated by a cell and less likely to be lethal. They can cause a lot of mischief, uh, but not necessarily kill the cell. In the back? So again, we don't know anything about the, the, the rates and different cell types and all that stuff. You know, we just looked at like a handful of cells from the medial frontal gyrus because that's kind of where we were starting. And, um, you know, you wonder if different parts of the brain have different rates or if glial cells have higher rates than neurons because they're more active and we, we just have no idea. It's, it's just, you know, it, it, now we can ask questions like that, but we, we don't know the answers yet. Uh, that was great. Thanks very much. Uh, at the beginning, you, meant, you suggested several possible causes, and you mentioned uh, radiation and chemicals and oxygen and uh, free radicals. Uh, the radiation and the chemicals, uh, we can sort of imagine how that could be. Uh, how do we get a handle on the uh, free radical uh, angle? Yeah, well, I think as we know more, um, about the rates of somatic mutation, uh, we can start looking at the mechanisms. I think that the oxygen, I'm not an expert on DNA damage and DNA repair, but I believe that the oxygen-free radical, the different types of DNA damage tend to have different signatures uh, in terms of the base substitution rates and things like that. And so, um, you know, so as I say, we, by looking at the 
the base substitutions and things like that, we're able to discover that, that a lot of the mutation seems to be transcriptional. But for example, we might then look at um, cells that have been damaged by oxygen-free radicals, and what is their, what does their um, mutational landscape look like? What are the signatures of oxygen-free radicals? And once we have that information, then maybe we can start parsing somatic mutations into different categories. I know when you look at, for example, cancer cells uh, from different uh, cancers, uh, you know, malignant melanoma has different types of mutations than lung cancer uh, in smokers uh, because the lung cancer ones typically have a signature of, um, you know, smoking-induced DNA damage, whereas melanoma tends to have a signature of sun of UV-induced DNA damage, and they're different ones. And so you, you can frequently recognize those signatures once you, uh, once you have analyzed the, you know, the, the base pair biases and so on. Yeah. Am I correct in thinking that very rapidly proliferating tissue like white blood cells yeah. must have um, many, many somatic mutations that don't come to fruition and that you're only really looking at the tip of the iceberg of, of cells that actually make it through several different layers of protective mechanisms? And what what do you think are the protective mechanisms? I can assume that some of it is apoptotic cell death, but I presume that there are other ways of selecting cells that are not wholly um, accurate genomic replication. Yeah. yeah, again, I'm not an expert on that particular area. I, I think you're absolutely right, you know, that there are a lot of protective mechanisms that keep somatic mutations out of the blood, although it also is the case that uh, as we age, uh, other studies by other labs have shown that the rate of somatic mutations detectable in the blood does go up, and that you see higher rates of somatic mutation, just normal occurring somatic mutation in people who have cancer, uh, that, uh, and you see higher rates in actually certain, uh, I think people with vascular disease tend to have slightly higher rates of detectable somatic mutation, not necessarily in vascular related genes, but just in general, uh, maybe because they have defects in DNA repair or you know, some sort of uh, checking mechanism that allows them to accumulate uh, somatic mutations which might predispose them to vascular disease, but I don't know exactly what yeah. Thank you very much.